You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to Shrink the Virus with me, Rob Seltzer, and myself, Steve Allen. Today is Friday, the 22nd of May, and it's 11.41 in the morning. Stephen, what is news, my friend? Oh, look, you know, it's um, actually, this is a really good day to do news because there was an article that came out in The Age yesterday, and it was in the world media, but it really didn't get the attention it deserved. And I reckon it's the best... Best news story I've heard on coronavirus in quite some time. Yeah. You know, there's been two big things. One, the success of so many countries in flattening their curve. Yes. But the big thing that we're all worried about, obviously, is whether you get immu- how you get immunity to COVID going forward. And there's two potential pathways for that. One is natural immunity from having the virus. So if you've had coronavirus, we're hoping that afterwards you're immune. And the second is obviously a vaccine. And the various arguments about the vaccine say somewhere between about six months and 18 months, hopefully. Anyway... The thing that's been I've been scouring the news for constantly is if you've had coronavirus, are you immune? And no one's actually done a study in humans to answer this yet, although we assume the answer is going to be yes, because studies from other coronaviruses and similar viruses like the flu, um, you know, you get a degree of immunity. And that's going to be fantastic because those people who have had it can, you know, be they can go back into the community. They can go back to work. They can travel overseas in theory. Anyway, yesterday there was a couple of studies that were published that got a little bit of attention, but not nearly the attention they deserved. The first one was a, um, a study uh, of um, some monkeys and they what the researchers did was they infected nine monkeys with COVID-19, the illness caused by um, the coronavirus. And after they recovered, they exposed them to the virus again to see what would happen. And none of the animals got sick. Fantastic. So it suggests Good that news. they do develop a natural immunity that protects against re-exposure, said one of the researchers that came out of Harvard's uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and it was published in the journal Science. And the second study was uh, a study where they tested 25 monkeys with six prototype vaccines Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. see if antibodies produced in response were protective. And then they took those monkeys and had another 10 monkeys, control monkeys, that they exposed to the the virus, Mm SARS-CoV-2. And uh, in essence, all of the control animals showed high degrees of virus in their nose and lungs. And in the vaccinated animals, they saw a substantial degree of protection. Really? And eight of the vaccinated animals were completely protected. And so, you know, and both of these studies in peer-reviewed journals. Now, obviously, there's still no study in humans. Mm. Obviously, we need to do similar sorts of research in humans at some stage, or at least get people who have clearly been infected with COVID and see, you know, what happens afterwards, whether any get reinfected. And currently, we... Uh, you know, that's been really tricky because there's been a lot of, as you know, lots of problems with the mm. testing. It's not quite clear if the testing is reliable. We've got to get really super reliable tests first, antibody tests to COVID before we can do that stuff. But anyway, those were incredibly positive results, I thought, and they certainly uh, lifted my COVID spirits. Yeah, look, I hadn't heard of those studies. I, I That is certainly uh, hopeful news on the way to building a vaccine. The study I read was out of the New England Journal of Medicine looking at 
COVID being a, or the, sorry, the virus being able to uh, infect cats. Now, you remember that story out of the Bronx Zoo? There was a tiger, I think it was, who uh, had gotten, uh, it was coughing a lot. And uh, they did a test for the virus and it actually had virus. Uh, and so the question was, can cats be infected with the virus if you, know, if you put a whole lot of cats together? And the answer was, it can be, which does not in any way, in any way mean that, uh, prove that you can, that a human can get the virus from cats. It just shows that cats can transmit it to themselves. Um, but uh, it's, I thought it was Why is quite, that important? Well, well, it could be important in terms of could cats be a what they call a reservoir or a vector a oh, vector a reservoir. i yeah. think it's a reservoir when they hold the virus and then a vector is when the the animal doesn't get sick like a mosquito with malaria right. i think i thought a reservoir was a suburb in melbourne <laughs> it's that too it's a few <laughs> I'm things not very good it's at a place that holds a lot of water as well um so that's interesting it's something to keep an eye on too um you know what it reminds me of though you yeah. know have you got any mental ticks you know like there's all these things that come into my head. And whenever anyone met, mentions any animal, I have this natural inclination to make that animal's noise. So, you know, so the moment you mention, you know, tigers, I'm tempted to go, Rah! and when I say monkeys, I sort of want to go, ee, ee. Uh, it's so childish, but it's like every time I have to stop myself from doing it. And obviously this time I didn't succeed. And this is the lighter side to a professor of psychiatry. <laughs> I feel like making animal noises when I hear their names. <laughs> hey man, we, we better get on with uh, our guest, uh, we've, we've just finished interviewing him. This is the this is the wonder of doing a podcast. Yeah, Raphael Epstein is a, a superstar radio presenter. He's an author. He's a public speaker. He is also a mate uh, of of mine. And the guy, I mean, you could spend five days with him just talking and not lose a second of interest. He is just incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly intelligent, and he's going to share a little bit of that with us coming up. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. And now we are welcoming Raf Epstein from ABC Radio Melbourne. G'day Raf. How are you? Good to be with both of you. G'day Raf. This is like um the hunted the hunter becomes the hunted. You know, we, <laughs> a couple of shrinks, we're getting to interview one of Melbourne's most famous and well-loved radio personalities on what is easily the best radio station in the country, or maybe Triple R. Triple R. There. Yeah. Hey, uh, Rob, We all started you... at Triple R, don't you? I, my first radio was Triple R. Really? Yeah. Tell us about Absolutely. that. What was yeah. that? What did you do? I did a uh, production course where I learned how to qu cut quarter-inch brown reel-to-reel yeah. tape and we were sent out to do a story and then I did with Bruce Berryman and then I did some midnight shifts when Triple R had nobody to fill in overnight. I think it was like 12 till 6. Graveyard, and you just yeah. came in and played whatever you like uh, with a good uh, mate of mine, Steve Caston, and we did that two or three times. So I think actually my first time at the microphone was Graveyard Shift Triple R just playing, you know, everything on Dark Side of the Moon or something ridiculous like that. So, no, no, Triple R. We all started at Triple R, although it's changed. Radio's changed. Now all the young ones come from Sin, I hate to say. They don't all come from Triple R, but that's just... That's good, though. You know what? Because it reflects the community radio yeah. is so strong in, uh, in yeah. Melbourne oh, and Australia in general. Yeah. Hey, in fact, you know, that leads me into what was going to be my second question, but now becomes the first. <laughs> what got you? You know, we hear you on the radio all the time and we know you so well, but I know you also worked in print journalism. I know you had a period. I think it was with The Age. What, just what got you to where you are now? What was the pathway? 
Oh, that's such a long question to answer. I suppose, I may, let me answer this way. I started in 95 in Sydney as a cadet in the TV newsroom and learned to do nothing except fly in the helicopter. That was all I learned to do. I flew week, I worked weekends to get more money because of penalties. And I'd just take the chopper every weekend. And that was in the days when you sat in the newsroom as a cadet and the chief of staff would circle a quote in the newspaper. We'd say, oh, that's Doug Hilton at uh, Walter and Eliza Hall. You said this in the paper. Can you go and interview him and get him to say that? And that's what I thought journalism was. You'd read a quote out of the paper, get the person to say it, give the tape to somebody else and they'd put the story together. So you didn't, the reason, through, so you didn't come through a university pathway? You came through no, I, I actually pathway. haven't finished my arts degree. I'm a subject short of my politics degree. I finished my physics degree. I did five years science arts, but I failed a politics subject in final year. Excuse me. <clears throat> but then got the, age, uh, the ABC cadetship. Didn't get the age cadetship. Alan Kohler knocked me back as a cadet. <laughs> And I never, never cease to remind him of that. Let me just command bold, uh, underline that you, you failed politics and yet you're known as being <laughs> no, no. a so let political me, journalist. Me, I, I do want to clarify that. I failed to complete my politics degree because okay. I failed one subject. Just one. Just one. Um, what I was just it? haven't ever finished it. What was oh, the I one don't subject? know. I think it, it, Australian it might politics? Actually, <laughs> I, well, I have an embarrassing feeling it was actually Middle Eastern politics, but I think it was because I didn't hand in my notes. I think, you know, I did one of those shoots. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's all fine, Rafi. You've got to give me your notes. And because I'm just hopeless at deadlines and still am, I never gave them my, them my notes, refused to, lost them, failed the subject, never got the arts degree, never went back and finished. So this does... So <laughs> you're hopeless at deadlines and you fail <laughs> politics and yet you're a political journalist. Ah, this is, hey, look, I've got well, to that, ask you... That's very good. That's like it, there isn't a journalist in the press gallery that doesn't have a similar profile. But can I fill in one more part of the story? Yeah. The bloke who is taking over from Alan Jones, Ben Fordham, uh, who's younger than me probably, he's probably 45 or something, I'm nearly 50, I saw him reporting at the Threadbow landslide in 98. I was working for ABC TV when I think that 16, 17 people died when the, the lodge mm. fell down the side of the hill at Threadbow. And I was intensely frustrated working for ABC TV, just being a satellite monkey, essentially wrangling talent, dragging them in front of the TV camera. And then I could see Ben Fordham, who was working as a news reporter for 2UE at the time. He was racing all over the mountainside having all these amazing anonymous conversations with people and then putting to air all these breaking news stories and actually doing real journalism as opposed to me who was just bringing cops and ambos and people and rescuers and all that sort of stuff to the TV camera while they were having a break. And I thought, oh, that's what journalism is. You go and pursue and you run and radio is where it's fun. And that's what caused me to jump from TV to radio at the ABC that I was advised not to do by the ABC and I haven't really left radio since then other than two years of the age uh, that I had a great time doing. But radio is my, undoubtedly my first love. Can I just, though, make a comment? It's the same in medicine. You know, I always jokingly, but half seriously, say I learnt more in my first month as a doctor than I learnt in seven years of medical school. By the way, it's meant to be six, but I failed a year. So, you know, <laughs> uh, um, you know yes. I, and you sound the same. You sound like you learnt just as much on the job as you did doing other things. Anyway. Hundred, look, I've never done a journalism degree, so I don't know. Um, but it is... You know, I, there used to be this debate about journalism, is it a trade or a profession? Um, maybe it's a profession if you're Lawrence Wright and you're doing, you know, the two-year deep dive investigative piece into Al-Qaeda. But yeah. I don't do that. I don't, I'm not making French antique furniture. I am making a chair out of packing crates every day. It's a bloody good chair. <laughs> it is not going to break. And it doesn't matter how fat you are, that chair will not break. 
but it ain't pretty. It's not sanded. It's not painted, and you might get some splinters in your bum. So it's it's you know it's a trade. It's not a profession. So how is, how is being a journalist different during this crazy time of COVID? Do you think? Oh, it's the biggest story of our lives, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I I was there in the ABC newsroom in Sydney at two a.m. because someone woke me up and said America's under attack. You know, nine eleven, and and that week was intense. Um, I've covered some really big stories overseas, you know, earthquakes that have killed tens of thousands of people. I did a little bit of the coverage of the tsunami and all those things felt generation defining, but I've never experienced a story like this. And it's never been the case that a story has exposed the media for who we really are. Oh, tell us about that. What do you mean by that? Well, the plague's the great deep, dark, truthful myth. Mirror, right? I think that's a line from the Elvis Costello line, right? The deep, dark, truthful mirror. And there's no doubt, right? The plague holds a mirror up to society and tells us all who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the journalism has been abominable. Like, it's just this vile, stereotyping, cheerleading, um, bomb-throwing, point-scoring. But at the same time, most people are getting their information about one of the most important public health issues, if not the most important public health issue in their life, from the media. And some of the media have been quite simply extraordinary in their ability to turn what is incredibly complicated public health information into really important, crucial lifelines. So I I think it's been quite amazing. Can you give us an example of a story or a media piece that you think just sort of represents that? The good or the bad? No, the good, well, both, if you you care to. (laughs) Uh, well, Norman Swan's the easy one, isn't he? Because um, there's no doubt he's just been able to present simple, cogent, persuasive, authoritative commentary every single day. Um, <laughs> yes, and it's not well. that easy to do. Um, and the government actually have really struggled to, and it, it blows my mind that we still don't have a daily briefing at the same time. Like, why on earth this far into it? I think we're day 68 or something of the... Um, the state of emergency in Victoria. We don't have the, either the Premier or the Chief Health Officer just in Victoria. Right, you know, 9am every single day they are stepping up. So that's, and it's just because their lives are complicated, right? They've just got a huge piece of machinery to be on top of. I'd prefer it. I think it'd be good. So it's hard for governments, it's hard for people. And the information is insane, right? How do you make sense? What's the R number? What's the denominator? What are the symptoms? How dangerous is it? I mean, there's no good answers to all of those questions. There are approximate answers to all of those questions. And then you have to translate them into something that makes sense to someone and doesn't mislead them. Mm. And just look at America. I mean, what a shit show it is. Mm. They can't present that information cogently. And even a network like CNN, um, which is a lot of the time is good, they're obsessed with the politics to the point where their coverage of the science is slanted. Uh, and so it, it's not easy. Norman Swan's been able to do that. We've had some dreadful examples, I guess, around the coverage of China that I just think is, you know, it's just this hairy-chested point scoring that's a complete waste of time, everyone's time. You know, it's interesting. I think there's a specific challenge that you face when you work at the ABC because not only you obviously got a journalism role, but you've also got a role as a public broadcaster, which becomes really super apparent at times like bushfires when, you know, there's this clear mandated role of the ABC. I think it's even legislated that they've got to put out all of these um, these uh, broadcasts. So, and it's funny you should mention Norman Swan because, you know, it's that I found early on there was a balance between the ABC at times. It was hard to know whether they were taking a journalism 
journalism role or a pu- public broadcaster role? Yes. And do you sometimes feel that this sort of, you know, it's a bit like diving, you know, it's a degree of difficulty 9.8. You know, you're trying to take two roles. You know, how do you manage that? How do you balance that? Because you could easily say things that have a journalistic intent to grab listeners and everyone wants to talk about it. They're fascinating topics, which might drive the public health message people crazy. How do you balance it? Uh, it's not easy. I mean, we've got the bushfire coverage to rest on. So, I mean, let me maybe talk about it in parallel. You know, so Norman's coverage is fantastic. It was mm-hmm. seen by some as advocacy. He saw it as a presentation of the science. Look, this mm-hmm. is what the science tells us. It was seen as advocacy and, and seen as telling the government they weren't moving fast enough. He saw it very much as, well, look, this is the information. This is what people yeah. are telling me. I've been... Um, interpreting the words of experts for decades, this is what I'm telling you. I'm not in government. Um, And it's the same when the bushfire stuff comes through. I mean, they send us through. There is still a communication problem. They send you through um, an emergency warning that's got to be broadcast straight away. And it quite literally is that you look at the computer screen, you sound that on the the air, and then you're looking at the words, and you know what? The words don't make sense. I mean, they still haven't perfected that system, and we have this conversation all the time. But I, I don't know what that means, and you want you want me to potentially save someone's life, but I've got no idea what I'm reading. It does not make sense. So we've spent a lot of time. We've spent since Black Saturday going, okay, here's something that's really authoritative, but you know what? A, it doesn't make sense. B, most normal human beings don't understand it. So we do have a backdrop to try and interpret that, and that was also what I tried to do, especially once the panic was rising and we weren't under lockdown and before the Grand Prix, I was trying to give people an understanding, okay, I'm not Norman Swan. I can tell you what Norman Swan has said. What I can also tell you is everything that's coming out of Brendan Murphy's mouth is not just his personal opinion. There are about a thousand people, and that was one of the things I really strove to understand. How many people are contributing to Brendan Murphy? The Australian Health Practitioners Committee or whatever that acronym is that I can't remember, but all of those chief medical officers and chief health officers giving advice to the rebadged COAG, the National Cabinet, that was a 1,000 people. So you're not just saying, hey, Professor Brett Sutton thinks this or Brendan Murphy thinks that, and by the way, he used to run the Austin. You're saying these people aren't talking on their own. They're good at this. They've done this for ages. There are 1,000 people across all the state bureaucracies and the federal bureaucracies sifting all the incomplete information that we have so it's in some ways it's incredibly difficult you're right degree high degree of difficulty but it's also what we what's what we do all the time like what's the science on climate change how does the science on climate change impact on what a government should do we have to grapple with that question all the time how do you tax fairly i mean it's an impossible question to answer how do you tax fairly but we answer it all the time so in some ways it's a unique challenge in other ways it's what we do all the time so raf why do you think the government listened to the scientists now in particular? What changed their mind? Well, so this is a story I've been trying to just ask everyone about. This is not at all, um, I'm not an expert on institutions. I'm really good on communications. I'm really good on how policy gets sifted through uh, party rooms because Mm -hmm. I'm used to that. It seems to me there are two significant, well, three significant things that made Australia different. Firstly, geography made it a bit easier to shut the borders, but I don't actually think that that was as significant as some people say. Secondly, we haven't denuded our testing labs. Um, They did in France, right? They got rid of their ability to make tests and run tests for ideological reasons. They kept the sclerotic industrial relations. 
they rationalized their health system. So did the NHS. They rationalized the labs. They weren't able to ramp up testing, right? Mm. Same in America. Um, Germany kept a strong, healthy system of testing labs. Being able to test, 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 see where mm. the thing is made a huge difference. We didn't rationalize our labs. We've still got a reference laboratory at Doherty. Huge, makes a huge difference. You've got authoritative people who can coordinate all the private pathologists. So that's the practical stuff. But I think there is, we all undervalue because we're just used to them. There's a Burnett Institute. There's a Kirby Institute. There's a Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. There's a Doherty Institute. Uh, they are amazing and they are actually integrated with and connected to our system of government. Our governments and our universities and our medical health and research institutes, it might be the size of the country, but they're really well integrated. There's a crossover of personnel, there's a crossover of work, there's a crossover of research and development funding. There's a lot of tension around those things. But as it got more and more serious, you know, through February and into early March, I think all of the people that ran those institutions, they were waving the red flag saying, you know, mm, Jesus, you know, wow, Grand Prix coming up. Oh, my God, we've got enough information now. We know about, you know, 7th of February is when the, um, the scientist in China dies, the guy who tried to raise the red flag. So that story's out. You know, they've got, we've all got some idea. While Donald Trump's defending President Xi on that day, all the institutions are waving that red flag. And I think there's a really healthy respect for institutions that hasn't been eroded. Um, I mean, climate policy is a shit show, right? It's mm. a complete shit show in this country. However, our institutions are strong. Our cultural links to our institutions mm -hmm. are strong. Mm -hmm. um, and our politicians are a part of a cohesive set of institutions of which the medical research institutions are a part. That's my best guess. I think that made a really big difference. I don't know if that's true. I've bounced it off a few people and who knows. You know, you must be faced with so many people to interview and you obviously have to fill out a lot of time. And so, you know, on that topic that you were just talking about, when you know, what made us listen to experts and what were our strengths, you at a personal level, when you're faced with, say, 20 potential experts to speak to on any given day, how do you sort out the wheat from the chaff? How do you know which is a real expert who's going to talk seriously about a topic and give good quality information versus someone who maybe has expertise, a professor of something with all this sort of stuff, but is clearly going down some sort of track that's their own personal hobby horse and might be sl slightly off topic? Because I've seen heaps of this. I've he seen heaps of, you know, the professor of immunology talking about some sort of epidemiological topic or the professor of infectious disease giving advice on what the economy should do and which things we should open up. How do you sort out the wheat from the chaff when the experts don't really know how to do it themselves? Um, well, firstly, sometimes it's good to have an, econom an economist being an epidemiologist or an epidemiologist being an economist. Sometimes that's really interesting. Um, secondly, I think everything is about context. So it's not so hard, right? If you get the head of the Burnett Institute, well, like, or you get the head of WeHi, like, you know, they're not amateurs, you know. It's not their first rodeo. So, and you ask them stuff that's within their ballpark. That is, it, sorry, is in their wheelhouse, and they won't step outside those boundaries. So it's not so hard, right? They're also they're not so easy to get. Then you get, um, you know, you get the immunologist who wants to talk about public health, or the public health person who wants to talk about the economy, and it gets a bit murky. But you know, I mean, we interviewed um, the editor in chief of the Medical Journal of Australia. He was very clear about what he does and doesn't do. And I presented him on air as someone who 
he is in the Rainer McIntyre, um, Bill Bowtell, Norman Swan camp, thinks we should go harder and faster. You need to know that. He's also really good at, he's the editor of the Medical Journal of Australia. So he's really good at analysing the experts' opinions. He's really good at being an expert about experts. Take him as that. He's not running the country. He's not running government. He's not running an institute. He edits a really important magazine. So it's not, it's not too hard to sift those people, to be honest. Um, I don't. It's not such a challenge. I think everything is about context. Greg Hunt's a very different person, right? You present. He's the health minister. He has the top health and public health people uh, advising him, but he has to make political decisions. He's accountable to the voters, and he has to think about the economy, even if the health of the country is his first priority. So I think as long as you say all that, they're pretty smart. You know, everyone who's listening is they understand who they're hearing from. It's different to the GP who rings up and says, I don't have enough PPE. Uh, and I can sympathise with that GP. And I can, But then you say, well, it's very clear that medical authorities are saying you might not need PPE in a lot of circumstances. There are fever clinics. There are doors in emergency departments that you can send people to. Don't let them come to your clinic. So maybe there's a reason you're not getting all the PPE you want. And I think the audience is smart enough to understand the difference between all those people, I think. I guess where I was getting actually frustrated at times was, I was where I was hearing people outside their expertise was maybe, let me think of an example, Karen Phelps. I heard her <coughs> interviewed a few times and she was giving advice about schools in New South Wales and that sort of stuff. Uh, but it, I really felt that she was... She was really giving her own personal opinion that had more of a political ring to it, yet she was being presented as an expert because she's a doctor. And sometimes <laughs> it was just, it was slightly frustrating me. Look, it wasn't on the ABC, I've got to admit, where I was seeing some yeah. of these interviews. But, uh, you know, at times I've felt that um, we all know, and I'm sure the journalists know, but I don't think the public quite know the difference between um, no. the different areas of expertise. And that's I, where it was frustrating me. I don't think the journalists know either. Um, I think you raise a really good point. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But, well, that's why the ABC is better than a whole lot of other media. <laughs> I mean, seriously. And look, there's also still lots of rubbish parts of the ABC, right? I saw some interviews where the context wasn't given. Um, we're journalists. We're pumping. It's a sausage factory. You've got to get someone up there. You've got to ask them about the issue of the day. You, that might not be their area of expertise. We do that every day. So I'm not saying we're perfect. But what I tried to do, especially in the critical times, was say, was give people an idea of where that person's expertise lay. I tried to do that. I probably failed a few times, but we're supposed to do that. Like, that's our job. You know, interestingly, with all these excerpts being interviewed, um, no one's come to Steve and me to talk about epidemiology. I mean, really, two psychiatrists, our contribution to epidemiology could be magnificent. Well, I wanted you guys on ventilators, right? I wanted you guys administering the drugs and ventilating and intubating people. Like, you both went to medical school, right? So you can do it. Well, we know, hey. you know where the switch is. That's and, about and, it. and as the old saying goes, how hard could it be? Yeah, yeah that's right. right. Yeah. 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 Well, journalists and doctors, right, they could both fly a jet plane. Just give them a few hours yeah. instruction. Of course they could do it. Absolutely. What was that old saying? See one, do one, teach one? Yeah. Um, now, Raph, how do, you, how do you keep your own opinion out of this? Because I know you, 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 know, you must have opinions because you're a, you're a walking, talking, living, breathing human being. How do you not uh, infect or pollute an interview when somebody is saying something which is diametrically opposite to what you believe? Well, I spent 25 years doing that. Tell us the um, secret. Well, practice. I don't think it's that hard. I mean, you know, I, I get the trolls texting every day. You know, there's a guy, this delightful guy called Dale 
I've forgotten his postcode. Um, but he's an avid listener, and he is convinced that we are a Trump-hating, um, uh, co- covert body to institute a Greens-led takeover of world government. Um, but he listens every not- day. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, the audience, will, some segments of the audience, and I'm sure, you know, the cheerleaders at News Corp will, will sort of laugh, but we spend our lives following the evidence, balance according to the weight of the evidence. Like, that is the editorial policy. One Nation wanted to put um, the ABC, uh, our editorial policies into law, and I was cheering them on. Because if you actually put into law, we have to be balanced according to the weight of the evidence. There's a whole lot of people I never have to have on the radio. That's fantastic. No problem. I mean, it's it's not that hard. Over time, it's really not that hard. You give people context. You uh, so even if someone's representing a minority point of view, that's fine as well. But you explain as well. You know, if the, if the flat Earth Society comes on. You do need to explain to the audience. Sometimes it's good to have the Plato Society on. Um, you need to explain to the audience that this is not something that's accepted by any major scientific institution in the world. However, there are people who believe the Earth is flat. I mean, we did, we've done it recently with whether or not the 5G, uh, the new mobile phone technology, helps distribute the virus. You can't not talk about that because it's out there. At the same time, you need to say repeatedly, there is no scientific basis or evidence to any of this. However, we're talking about it because other people are. So, but how do you, but, but if you do that, then you give oxygen t- to the ideas. How do you balance yeah, that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, and I think also you have to not mock people. So at, firstly, I think conspiracy theory stuff's a bit easier than climate stuff. Climate's probably the most difficult topic to talk about while also, um, you know, because it's not as easy to weigh up the, like what's the expert evidence around, say, modular reactors. Um, it's quite complicated. Hard to make money out of them. Um, no one's got any... There's nowhere to put the waste. Like, we spent 50 years looking for somewhere to put the medical waste. You've got to say that. We still haven't found anywhere. Um, there's no nuclear reactor that I'm aware of anywhere in the world that anyone's ever been able to insure. Governments have to insure them. There's no insurance company in the world that ever insures them. But if you want to talk about nuclear power, sure, come on and talk about nuclear power. So you need to be across a lot of facts. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't include opinions that might be in the mainstream. I mean, nuclear power is illegal at the moment, so that's why I would call it outside of the mainstream. You'd have to change that law. Um, so as you get away from things that are incontrovertible, like we all know the phone network doesn't spread the virus, it gets a little bit harder. And, of course, with politics it's harder, like the dividend imputation issue or negative gearing or taxation or JobKeeper. That's harder. But at the same time, it's not harder because... You know, like JobKeeper's non-ideological now, isn't it? I mean, I know Labor's arguing for the extension for that government subsidy for a job, but it's not an ideological battle. It's kind of like a tactical, political battle. So, I, I mean, you know, people often say, oh, how do you keep your opinion out of it? We spend our lives keeping our opinions out of it. Um, and to be honest as well, the so-called opposition are so blatantly ideological in their pursuit of an audience that it kind of makes it easier because it leaves us more of a broad central field to occupy. Um, and, you know, the government will say that to you about elements of the Murdoch press. You know, these people in the coalition, they're like, well, I don't read that person. I don't read that newspaper. That's, that's, they're just crazy. 
So in some ways, our job is easier. There aren't as many. And the age is also now occupying, and I would even argue Channel 9 News, they're now occupying a more of a central position. They're not busy chasing the Guardian's audience, which is commercially sensible. But it's also like, oh, okay, there's, you know, there's a, a middle ground um, where, okay, there's the middle ground. doesn't mean you only have middle ground voices. I think that's really important too because mm-hmm. we're supposed to have as many voices as possible when we can and if it's worthy. But it's not so hard. I don't actually find it that hard. I mean, you know, I can hear the I can hear the Murdoch types laughing into their coffee if they're listening to Triple R. But you know, so yeah. what? So it's interesting, though, because that's how you keep your own personal opinion out. The other thing that sort of gets me is a lot of the um, topics that are chosen, especially the fake news ones, the conspiracy ones, it strikes me they're cocaine for journalists. You know, they're so tempting because you know the audience is going to ring in. You know people like are going to talk about it. Like which topic do you mean? It. Well, you know, all the various weird fake news stories, like and half the stuff even that Trump talks about. Um, no. You know, it's really, it's obviously nonsense. It doesn't need to be reported. But, you, you know, even... You know, the broad spectrum of people listening, they want to hear it either to scoff or to agree or to debate. And so I sometimes wonder how journalists sort of, uh, you know, if you use that analogy of it's like cocaine for journos, all these, you know, bizarre stories, you know, how do you avoid getting addicted? It's just so tempting to cover those stories. But, you know, those stories, the extreme stories can sometimes squeeze out the stories from the middle ground that are much more important. You know, is it... Is it a challenge to avoid those stories or is it, again, you know, something that looks hard but it's actually easy when, you, when you're sitting in the driver's seat as you are? Well, it's your middle ground. It's my that's really fucking boring, Steve. You know what I mean? So there is an element of that. Um, no, that's, that's important, right? Like we are, I am supposed to inform and entertain. It does yeah. say that in the ABC legislation. And if I don't maintain an audience, it is harder for... David Anderson and Ida Buttrose to sit in front of the Senate Estimates Committee and say, please don't take any more money away from us. So maintaining an audience and maintaining the interest of someone who doesn't know as much about it as you do, and you're both um, you're both not the target audience, right? You're not core audience. You're media addicts. I know that. I know from both of you that how much news you consume and how much you know, you're not in the middle of the audience. The middle of the audience is... Ironing, cooking, driving, cleaning, working, teaching. They're doing a million things at once. They don't have the time and the resources that you do to have a deep dive. So I have to, if I'm engaging, say I did an interview with Angus Taylor uh, this week, the Energy and Emissions Reduction Minister. There is no more complicated area of policy, right? So I could just talk about nuclear power. I chose not to, right? That's a bit like the cocaine for journalists, right? Because it's I just don't think it's ever going to happen. But I have to make a choice to keep it simple. I'm sure a lot of the people who are critical of the federal government's climate change policy would be frustrated that I didn't, you know, attack that specific detail. And, oh, don't you know, they didn't really meet the 2020 um, emissions target, which is something I've covered in the past and I have some understanding of, but I chose not to do because it's way too complicated and you lose the audience. That's my long way of saying uh, sometimes when you hear us tackling what you think is tabloid and cocaine, it's our way of going, well, okay, in a public health situation, you start with zero and then you layer activities on top and try to minimise the risk as much as possible. So I can begin to explain how public health works and so I can dismiss the argument, oh, they trust me to keep a metre and a half of bunnies, but they don't trust me to keep a metre and a half away from my mate at the restaurant. So I can dismiss arguments about that because it's not about relative risk. It's about adding numbers of people doing an activity. I'm going to start talking about golf. 
that golf sounds like a tabloid crack cocaine for journalists kind of story, but actually it's a really good way because for most people, if I, if I start off the conversation and say, well, let's talk about how public health works in the middle of a pandemic when yeah. you don't have much information about the disease, they're gone. If yeah. I say, why can't you play golf? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, I so I, I hear where you're coming from. And I actually never said that. I didn't usually use golf much as a story because, I mean, it's, frankly, I think it's a bit ridiculous. However, there's, you know, sometimes you need uh, an entry point into a story that the person who is stacking the supermarket shelf while they're listening to the radio or doing their essay or ironing their clothes, they go, oh, what's that? You know, I mean, you work in radio. The lean-in moment. You want the lean-in. Yep, the hook. You want, yep. yep. So, you know, um, I, and I'm sure people think I'm tabloid. I know, I know. There are people in my family who tell me 7742 tabloid and they switch over to Radio National and Triple R. I don't I think mean, it is at all. I, you know, I actually, I think that, yeah, I'm biased, but I reckon the public adores Yeah, you're biased. You're, you're, you know, if you <laughs> contributors were paid for being on 774, you'd be a millionaire. I mean, you know. And, and I've got to say, no, I am one of the people that listens to you whilst I'm doing the cooking. So, yes. um, you know. Um, I was going to ask you how you don't uh, dissolve into apoplexy whenever you talk about Trump, but I won't. You've, you've <laughs> no, you can ask it. But so here's the thing, okay? And it's like it's like the minister who won't answer the perfectly obvious question. Um, I get to ask the question. It's tremendously empowering. Mm -hmm. If the minister doesn't answer your question, oh well, there you go. What a fool she is! Mm. What a fool she is! Mm. Um, if I'm listening to someone else interviewing the minister. And she's not answering the question. I'm like, oh, I want to throw the phone out the radio. Uh, sorry, I want to throw the radio out the window. Um, so it's very different being the leader of the conversation or the person asking the question. You're empowered. Yeah. It's totally different. That's what power is. Power is leading a conversation. Mm. So it's easy. You go, ha, President Trump, hydroxychloroquine. Ha! Much easier to talk about and, and look at the feedback on the text and the phone than to hear it on the radio. Like when I listen to those podcasts from America, and hear what a disaster, you know, that is. That's a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. Which brings me to a, to another question. Um, who right now is your Surely favorite? you can't use all of this. But anyway, keep going. Yeah, you know, we're I'm using all of it. Because I don't like editing. So, so we're using everything. Editing <laughs> takes time and effort. I don't have the time to edit stuff out. So, uh -huh. um, so I was going to ask you, uh, who's your favorite journalist or your favorite reporter or your favorite presenter right now? Who's my favourite journalist right now? Or oh, one of your favourites. Um, who do I like? Well, I like different parts of different people, to be mm. honest. Um, who do I like? I love Hamish McDonald's tone. I love his tone, his ability to ask. Mm. And the, the politician doesn't actually know if that's a really <laughs> fucking aggressive question <laughs> or if that's a really... Oh, tell me, tell me your policy, please, Minister. And that's a real gift because I reckon the politicians know. They know where I'm coming from. I'm, I'm yeah. a much more open book of a person yeah. than Hamish. So I love his tone. You know I what? Love... He's got a, he's got a schoolboy smirk almost. He, you, you, I yes, agree. You know, he just looks like a schoolboy asking it for a um a, an assignment. And so yes. yeah, I, I agree entirely. And which yeah. which gives it, it disarms people. Anyway, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Go on. No, no, it's okay. I love Fran Kelly. Fran Kelly's a great. I think what he's underestimated about Fran. I mean, she's across detail and great interviewer. She's a great traffic cop. The ability to create a conversation amongst. A multiple group of people on the radio when you can't yeah. see them um, before, a, you know, in a not very long time span. She's fantastic at that. And then I'd mention 
two others actually um, who are both on the same podcast. But uh, the Slate Political yeah. Gabfest out of America, um, David Plotz, just because he's entertaining to listen to, who's the, the nominal host of that, but John Dickerson, who has been the CBS political correspondent, um, he was also, he did face the nation for a short time. He did their morning show. Now he's on 60 Minutes as someone who can explain to you how politics is supposed to work and why it is not working. Um, and I had the great pleasure and privilege of interviewing him hmm. once face-to-face. So people like that. I've I got to say, PK would have to be my favourite journalist because she's like Hamish McDonald. Oh, yeah, no, but she, PK is too much of a friend. I mean, I can't, like, it's just sort of telling you I love my mum. <laughs> well, she's not, I, I look, I don't know her apart from what I hear uh, from her on the radio. No, but, but she's she also, amazing. She's amazing. She's got the, she also has, like, a smirk on her face as well, I can imagine, as she's asking yes. questions. Yes. She's just terrific. Well, she's, but, yes, yeah, she does have a smirk, but I think she too, uh, she's much better at keeping her cards close to her chest. Her tone is great. The yeah. politician never knows what they're going to get with her, and I think that's a real gift. Hey, can I can I throw an idea at you? Because mm-hmm. by the way, this happens all the time. He comes up with these ideas that he thinks are going to win a Nobel Prize. I swear, as he goes to a sl- to sleep, he writes his Nobel Prize acceptance <laughs> speech, and and he won't tell me what today's idea is. Can I can I tell keen. you can I tell you what you're wrong, Steve? I don't write my Nobel Prize acceptance speeches. I go to sleep. I write it when I wake up in the morning because I'm fresher. Okay, so. This is actually my brother's idea, Rafa. Now, you're a seasoned reporter. You're across a broad range of issues, including the economy. So this is an idea that my brother had to fix the economy. I think it's personally brilliant, right? What you do is you legislate. I have to get this right because I'm very bad with this. Yes, Rob from St Kilda. What would you like to say? You're on the line. You're on the air. You legislate so that superannuation funds if they buy government bonds, get a tax break. Now, the genius of this is that it will be Australians buying their own debt. So the debt won't be owned by a foreign government, which could play, you know, play, with, uh, um, play with the bonds. So it's all owned in-house here. It encourages people to buy the debt because you get a tax break and you're not losing any tax money because that tax money would never be sent anyway because it would always be foreign. But what's the point? Why do you need the debt to stay here? What's the point? Why do you care who's buying the bonds? Because if you buy the bonds here, then um, you're you're encouraging people to buy bonds. Yeah? You don't need to encourage people to buy bonds. Why why do we need to? We've got AAA credit rating, state and federal. There's no, I mean, there's no lack of a market for our bonds. I mean, we could double the debt. Federal government could double the debt. I mean, they have doubled the debt. But what's it at? Six hundred billion now. It's going to go yeah. to seven fifty or something. They could, they could have one point five billion dollars worth of but two, three, think- four, five year treasure uh, bonds. They'd still be able to sell them. There's no, there's no need to incentivize people to buy our bonds. Okay, you know how before I said uh, we don't edit our podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting back here busily trying not to laugh out loud. Damn! Rob, Rob set this idea up to me yesterday on the phone. Didn't tell me what it was, but he said it's, it's, it, this could revolutionise the whole well, of Australia's I, so if, economy. If we have, the other problem is if we do have problems selling our bonds and we're selling them to ourselves, then we're not picking up on the signal. If we're having trouble selling our bonds, that's when we have got too much debt. I mean, we don't have too much debt now, and I think I've got this right. If we doubled our federal government debt, 
would still be way ahead of most of the developed world, especially countries like um, the United States. Can I just so say... I, just, my, I, I think you're looking for a solution uh, to something for which there is no problem. Can I just say it wasn't my idea, it was my brother's. <laughs> <laughs> Danny from, from Turek will never be answered again. Hey, uh, we're going to run out of time. So we would we always ask this question oh, at Steve, the end Stephen, of Stephen, 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 can I just ask one last question before we Sorry, ask the final question? Um, Raf, I saw your... Twitter post of the photo of when you were 20. Yeah. Um, how often do you reckon you were mistaken for Michael Hutchins? <laughs> uh, not very often. I never got Michael Hutchins. I did, and I. this is not a boast. Okay, this is not a boast. Um, and thank God he's not actually that good looking. I did occasionally get the, you look a bit like Bono um, when I was 20. Oh, yeah. But that's just because I've got a similarly broken nose, I think, and it has sort of a similarly shaped chin um but most embarrassingly i used to get mistaken for my now wife then girlfriend uh we used to be mistaken as brother and sister <laughs> when, we, when i had long hair and she had long hair which gives a terrible truth to that idea that people actually end up falling in love with people who look just like them. it is a great oh, photo it's a great photo it's so true i think the reality is though is you probably looked like her father and she looked like you know it's that sort of oh, thing horrible. you know it's yeah, the mate. family resemblance and it's a yeah. sort of a transference thing to your childhood because i used mate. to get that all the time too my um wife uh, ex-wife i suppose i should call her um I used to get told all the time how much I looked like. It's important, Steve. Important to her, trust me. Um, uh, but I used to always get told I looked like her father, and at family functions, ah, right. I would always wow. get mistaken. But uh, yeah, as long um, as we don't get mistaken that we look like our dogs, that's what I'm hoping doesn't happen to me. I think that's that's truth in that one. Mm. Um, to, by the, are you a musician? Musician? I've got it in my head. You do me? play music? No, yeah. no. Look, uh, I, I've said it on the radio a few times because I learned so many instruments at school, but I was such a I was so bad at practice. Practicing. So I did actually learn four instruments, record a guitar, um, violin. Um, what was I? Record a guitar, violin. Oh, there was another one in there. Anyway, but I was crap at all of them and never yeah. any good at any of them because I never tried. Yeah, same as me. Hey, so on to our last question. What are you doing now better than you were doing six months ago? What's something that this is, you know, brought out for you in terms of a silver lining, whatever you want to call it? What are you doing better now? Than six months ago. Yeah, but oh, sorry, the virus has been now been going over six months. We better change the question to eight months ago. Oh, Pre-virus. I've got no idea. I tell you, the big difference is I've had all these experts on the radio, and they give you direct answers. <laughs> and I'm so used to interviewing people who won't give you a direct answer, and it's mind blowing. And occasionally, half of the time, the politicians give you really direct answers. So that's the that and it is incredibly noticeable, and the audience notices it as well. You know, we have so most of the conversations we have about serious matters of public policy, you're interviewing people who don't want to tell you what everyone know, knows is true. Hmm. That has changed drastically, not only with the experts but also with the politicians and politicians saying, "We don't know. No one knows the answer to that question." And it's like, I'm oh, sorry, what? Um, so that's the <laughs> yeah. biggest change. And it's remarkably refreshing, I think. And is that and disappearing other... now? Is that disappearing now, do you no, think, in the no, last couple of weeks? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I mean, yes, if you're not talking about the pandemic, it does. But the other thing is they're so fucking smart, all the experts. And I'm having all these off-the-record conversations with these amazingly intelligent people. And it makes all the um, off-the-record conversations with the politicians seem really boring mm. because they're just – they're just warriors, you know, they're just, you know, they're just throwing spears. But the experts are like 
oh my God, I just want to keep asking you questions. You're so intelligent and you're thinking about so many things I've never thought of. I want you to tell me more things I've never thought of. So that's been a huge change in my life. I'm just talking to all these direct and intelligent people. Raf, we could speak for the next couple of hours, um, but we know you've got a show to go and do today. Uh, you're a uh, media I'm star. I'm going to do my feedback session after this, so I get the constructive feedback with the expert presenter person who says, Raf, maybe next time you should ask a question like this, or maybe you should say it like that. So I'm about to get a lot of construct- constructive criticism. Oh, we need Feel, to, we, feel we need free to right. use this interview to take along and say, I really love the way Robin Steve, <laughs> as psychiatrists, work as journalists. Jeez, if you ever listen on Sunday morning on Triple R's, gee, it's good radio. Oh, my God. We've got a lot to learn from them, you know, Rob. A lot to learn from them. Oh. <laughs> Lots oh. of rambling, <laughs> technical errors. Lots of ums. Dead, dead air. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say you're a uh, radio superstar. You're an author. You're a, very good, you're a very good cook as well. Thank you, um, Rob. So are you. No one does show sugar quite like you. Oh, thanks, man. <laughs> um, thanks for joining us. And, no problem. Um, we've got to have you back on. Cheers, mate. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Great Thank to you talk to you. I better go and do my feedback call, but great to be on. Good luck. Cheers. And thanks, Raf. Bye-bye. And that was our interview with Raf Epstein, the afternoon's presenter on ABC Radio Melbourne. What a great guy. Did you enjoy that interview, Rob? Man, isn't it? Yeah, like, like I said on the intro, he, you could just talk to him for five days and just not lose interest. He really is good. And the thing, he's, he's interviewed so many thousands of people. He's got, and he retains all this knowledge and he can just bring it out, bang, 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 like that. It's great. What a great job to have. Oh. Hey, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Of course, we have a Facebook page, Shrink the Virus, and also on Instagram. And we're about to launch our um, Twitter as well. We have an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. Um, feel free to give us any feedback you like. We love feedback. And of course, don't forget to tune into Triple R. Do you want to do the thank yous for the Triple R, Rob, or should I? No, I'm happy to. You know what we should do, Stephen? I haven't mentioned this to you. We should say the for people that review us, we'll review your review on air. <laughs> review, <laughs> so, so if you say, hey, you guys are just totally terrible, yeah. we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll look we'll at go, the grammar. <laughs> yeah, we'll, say, we'll say, yeah, we know. Yeah, don't yeah. tell us stuff we know. It's yeah, yeah, so obvious. <laughs> Our parents tell us that. <laughs> <laughs> tell us something new. Yeah, so thank you to Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael at Triple R for making this happen. And also a very big uh, thank you to Raphael Epstein. This has been Shrink the Virus, and uh, we'll be catching up with you again in a couple of days' time. Cheers. And don't forget to uh, tune into our other radio show, Radio Therapy, at 10am on Sundays. See you later, gang. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. 